0: Hi, folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. Just looking for your support, as always. We are rattling the bucket and pleading with you to go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's the link at the top of the podcast that you're listening to right now. And join us. It's the easiest bit of activism you can do this month. And you get immediate access to our entire back catalogue of over 1,300 podcasts from across the platform. Including podcasts in the last couple of days with Emmett Kirwin, Aoife Moore and author Naomi Klein. All of those are sitting there right now waiting for you for the price of a fancy cup of coffee and a scone. And not only do you get access to our podcasts as quickly as I can turn them around. You will be getting the warm fuzzy feeling of knowing that you keep the platform free for everyone. And you'll be helping keep a left-leaning, progressive podcast platform going. The few quid from you carves out that bit of space that we need to keep the lights on, mics on, and have those conversations that you don't get anywhere else. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined on the podcast today by a guest we've had before and um, is now in his new position. It is Barra Roentree, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Economics in Trinity College, former ESRI economist. Barra, it's great to have you back in the podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, Barra, I want to chat about inequality and the um, proposals around child uh, to address and radically reduce child poverty poverty through welfare measures, and a bit as well about the budget surplus um, mm-hmm. today. And you produced a report just in with the SRI on inequality in Ireland and looking at it in terms of where we're at. And essentially... From reading the report, your findings are are pretty stark in terms of showing that, in terms of 2022, so let us look back kind of 2020 to 2022, we've actually seen a rise in inequality. And some people might say that's not really surprising, um, given you know COVID, the economic um kind of contraction around that, people being you know laid off. But then on the other hand. We it also includes the rebound after COVID as well. And it doesn't quite include the the huge inflationary pressures, which again is is more of a fear in terms of how, how that will impact. But really what you found was the bottom um income deciles that you know, those on lower incomes in Ireland actually were hit harder and, and saw a reduction in their income relative to higher income groups in that period. Maybe you could just give us a sense of the kind of main findings that that she um that she got in terms of looking at the data and what what it tells us about inequality in ireland right now sure so
2: so this is kind of our annual look at the at the sri put out this annual uh report which is funded by the community foundation ireland and we can look at living standards and how they've evolved over time look at poverty deprivation and so the we're using the latest data from the cso and that kind of covers a period it's collected in 2022 but it kind of covers you know that just up to then so kind of Taking into account some of the rebound from the from COVID, as I said, but not the not the full amount. And before really, we saw the jump up in inflation. And what that kind of shows is that, whereas you know, the, you know, what we have seen over the past decade or so is actually incomes growing by more at the bottom of the distribution than the top. And so, as a result, inequality narrowing. But what we saw is that kind of pattern stall. So we didn't see actually any growth for households at the very bottom of the distribution. We saw their incomes fall. Um, and we didn't really see much change then for the rest of the, the bottom half of the distribution. Instead, only really in, in, in tw- over 2021 were incomes growing at the very top of the distribution. And again, that that's, as you say, kind of quite so striking in a way that because it's quite different to what we have seen over the past yeah. almost almost decade. Um, that if you look at these kind of common measures of income inequality, that they have been kind of going down over the past few years. And that, that and, and in that sense, I think this is something we've talked about before. Ireland actually stands out from that perspective that, you know, most advanced economies have seen inequality going up and or they haven't seen incomes growing by much at all. Whereas what we've seen in Ireland for the since the recovery from the crash was incomes growing by a lot for households and growing by more at the bottom shrinking inequality but that kind of seems to be stalling now and the re- what we can kind of highlight in the report has being maybe a particular concern is that okay fine this is a once you know this is the time when we were recovering from covid so things are a bit weird around that time you know that what, what we find was the reason driving that was the labor market was recovering but whereas those at the very bottom of the distribution were kind of going back to work part-time rather than full-time and so that's a bit what's going on there but again this was before the big jump in inflation and so what that means is that you know, we're very unlikely to have income growth last year. We're very unlikely to have income growth this year, particularly for households at the bottom of the distribution, because most of what their income is made up of is, you know, is very sensitive to to transfers, uh, um, and, and and so those haven't kept pace with inflation. Um, so you're going to be in a situation, you know, at the end of you know next year, really, where for the bottom half of the distribution, you're going to have effectively three years of no income growth. For those at the, the top, you'll have had maybe a year, which might offset some of the, the kind of the, the jump up inflation. But but that does mean that we're kind of in a different situation to where we, we're we looking at like we might be in a different situation to where we have been since the recovery, where incomes have been growing, inequality has been falling. And now that looks like that might be kind of stalling. And and again, I, sh- I should say that, that you know, that, that's the story on the income front. This takes account of incomes after tax and welfare. It doesn't take account of what's going on in terms of public services. And I think that's where some of the, the big challenges really in Ireland are, say, in terms of, you know, housing, in terms of healthcare, in terms of childcare. And, and, and so while you have had incomes rising, that, that, that's kind of, I think sits a little bit uneasily with, we you've got these other things which aren't taken account of. And that, that maybe is a part of the story about why, you know, why we've been in this position where in Ireland, you have seen income inequality decreasing, incomes growing and in a progressive way. And yet that's maybe not being felt by, by, um, the population or not, not, that's not going to be seen. Uh, by the population is what's happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, and ex- I think that's really important because the discussion around inequality, when it's narrowed to just income inequality, which is measured uh, crudely by the the Gini coefficient, that as you say, it excludes so much in terms of you know the role public services play, and um, but also of course it, it excludes wealth, and that is another area that we are much more unequal in terms of wealth than we are in terms of income. Um, and wealth distribution. And does these income figures include what you might call income earned from wealth in terms of, yeah, you know, like dividends from shares or rent, you know, and those sort of things off.
2: So so it includes some of it. And I think that's actually, you know, but it doesn't include all of it. And in particular, what it doesn't include is capital gains, right? And that's, you know, if, if you buy, A house say for a hundred thousand as an an investment as someone does and it doubles to two hundred thousand um you would in principle pay capital gains tax on the hundred thousand increase at a rate of 33 percent yeah and so you know that that actually is a very important form of income for particularly the top of the distribution and part of that is because it is more favorably treated so in terms of if you have your own business and there's this thing called entrepreneurs relief, which is a reduced rate of capital gains tax. And effectively, it means that if you own your own business, you can kind of structure things in such a way that that increase in the business value, when you dispose of it, you can essentially end up paying 10% tax or, or, or less. There's some other reliefs kind of like that. And and so I, I think you're right, you know, that when we talk about income inequality, in, in a way, I think it's it, we should recognize that Ireland looks very different from most advanced countries and that we have seen income inequality fall. And that, that's, that's something we should try and understand more because I think that's. That's something which, you know, uh, operates as if you've got if it, got, if it going the other way, things are going to be harder again. Like we, we see how difficult it is to make things like public services work well when we've got income inequality falling. We wouldn't want it to be going the other direction because that makes yeah. the task even bigger, right? But as you say, then there is this situation with wealth. And that's, you know, it, it's the case in most countries that wealth is um uh, uh, less equally distributed than income. But in Ireland, what we do have is we have a tax system that is particularly preferential to certain forms of income. and in particular income from wealth right so first of all just the rate of capital gains tax that's 33% so that's less than you might pay on an you know if if you're once you're uh, onto the high rate of tax you're paying at a marginal rate of about 52% right um so versus labor income capital income is treated more favorably but then there's also and I think this is more where the where the discussion should be all these reliefs so we've got entrepreneurs relief which i mentioned earlier on you've also got this thing called retirement relief so essentially if you're between fifty-five, I think it is, and sixty-five, so kind of at that age, you can dispose of some assets and pay zero uh, capital gains yeah. tax on them whatsoever. And then the biggest one of all is if you just hold on to the assets until you pass away, you pay nothing. Capital gains is forgiven a debt. So those are three big, massive loopholes. And like, and is the way- there a
1: big, a big relief on pensions as well? I remember that highlighted a number of years ago. I remember, the figure was massive. It was yeah. So so there's a, over a, a billion or something, of- and it was hugely skewed. As a relief towards the upper end of the income uh, distribution, yeah.
2: so, so actually the the biggest tax relief in terms of pensions is the tax free lump sum. So that on, on that that's on retirement, and this this primarily benefits people with very large pension pots or defined benefit kind of largely at this stage public sector pensions. Um, but you know you have to be a very well paid public servant to, to to really be benefiting from this at the most. Yeah. So you talk you talk, but you have a two hundred thousand tax free allowance. So that's you retire, you're able to draw down. 200 grand from your pension entirely tax free and then another 300 grand at 20%. So that that's I think the the least uh, a fair bit of the pension tax system but but that alongside those other reliefs I mentioned they're all things that the commission on tax and welfare uh, which I was part of uh, uh, and last year recommended we should look at addressing because I re- again I really think you know that is where the action is a lot uh, about in terms of inequality in the situation in Ireland. We don't have very high levels of income inequality. I think you can reasonably look at the situation in terms of wealth and say, well, the structure of the tax system isn't fair given the distribution of wealth we have. Whereas again, our tax system is quite a progressive one. We, you know, there are are problems with it, there's issues with it, but really I think the big fundamental problem is our preferential treatment of capital income and the way that People, particularly those at the very top of the distribution, can convert income from labour income to capital income. Right, so people people have the ability to shift the form that their income is taken in, and when you have differentials in terms of the tax rates, it's no surprise that people who are able to do that do that. And 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 so that's I think really where the focus should be at for for those who are interested in 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 kind of seeing a a fairer Ireland. Right, yeah. should it actually be yeah. more about those really egregious reliefs in in terms of the capital income side because you know, there isn't, you know, there isn't a good argument for maintaining them in terms of investment and all the rest. These are these are tax reliefs on terms of people disposing of assets, getting rid of them, selling them on. They're not in terms, and, and we know that we, from evidence in other countries, that that doesn't spark investment. Rather, if our aim is to, like, encourage business investment, then let's give a tax relief on people when they invest, right? So let's increase the re- um, research and development tax credit. Let's, let's give greater capital uh, write-offs in terms of actual investment, rather than disposing of a business when you're done with it at the end. Because uh, that's what the current system you kind know, of does, and really benefits, and that's really set up to benefit people who have ha- who who have businesses, have grown them, but are getting rid of them. Um, it's it's not really set up as a way of encouraging entrepreneurship. Um, there is an interaction there, but um, but really, it, it's not. Uh, um. Sorry, I think my my camera briefly went there, but um, uh, it, it, that's really I think where that the focus should be in terms of if you are looking at where could the tax system be made fairer. It's all really around the capital taxation side, and and there's some tweaks you can make in the income tax side, but again, that's where the action should be. I think.
1: And just out of interest on the side now, we're we're going to, there's so, there's so much we could talk about. Um, The question of taxation of property uh, is, is essential within this. And I'm thinking of, particularly on a broad level, the relief around um three specific questions. One is on the real estate investment trust tax break, which I don't think we've seen figures of analysis of how much tax is foregone on that one. Um, But we know that there are multiple, um, the ICAVs, which are these different tax uh, efficient, in quotes, (laughs) vehicles, where we know the likes of big, large investment funds, the new large corporate landlords are essentially paying very, very little tax um, on their rental incomes and and their incomes generally in terms of disposal of assets and that in Ireland. That is their scope. And did you look at that? Um, in terms of removing that tax break and looking at taxing that area uh, specifically.
2: So, so uh, I, I know this, actually, I think I, I might have quite a different view to to, to maybe yourself. But actually, in terms, of, if you look at REITs and the way they're structured, they do, yes, they don't pay any corporation tax on the kind of on the profits that they make day to day, but they do. The shareholders have to pay tax on any income that they get, right? And and yeah. REITs, by law, have to disperse their. I think it's 85% or so of the profits that they make. Right? So they can't hold on to them yeah. in that sense. They have to disperse them. And so actually, in terms of the people who ultimately own REITs, they are paying tax. Now, People, international shareholders of REITs will maybe pay a lower tax rate than might Irish shareholders. That's true of any business. you know. It, it, that, that's down to double taxation treaties, and there's kind of a whole different discussion there. But in terms of the favorability of, of REITs, actually, I I don't think there's much there. It, rather, rather, what REITs were introduced by was to f- try create a structure in which people could hold property assets without having to hold them personally because we were that was coming out of the situation where we were in the crash where you had effectively Irish people let you know borrowing money from Irish banks who borrowed internationally to invest in property as, as, on them on their own and you know a big chunky kind of they, they could on, you can only buy property really in like chunks of whatever 000, uh, uh, you know it, it kind of it's discrete discreet like that. And so REITs were an attempt to kind of provide a form in which you you had the same tax treatment um, between either doing that or holding it personally so that there wasn't a tax wedge. I, and so I, I don't really think that's where the, the debate should be at in terms of the taxation of property. Rather, and this is where we did recommend on the commission on taxation report, that the thing that probably contributes most to you know the unfair, you know, the preferential tax treatment of housing is capital gains tax relief uh, uh, for principal private residences. So this is what you know. But this isn't, you know, this is where it gets a little bit difficult because people who primarily benefited from this are probably, you know, older middle class and and above Irish households Mm -hmm. where they bought a property for a hundred thousand. So as I mentioned, you know, if you bought that as an investment earlier, you bought a property for a hundred thousand, you sell it for 200,000, you pay CGT at 33% on the, the, the hundred grand gain. But if it's your own personal private dwelling, right? A principal private residence, you don't pay any capital gains tax at all. So what that leads to a situation is where Irish people really want house prices to be rising, to be going up, because that's an untaxed form of a capital gain. And, and I think actually that is really where, you know, that was actually a recommendation in the Mission Tax and welfare Report that we should look at restricting that. Like, ultimately, I think it should be completely gone away with and you should be treating those type of gains in the same way that you should any other type of gains. But you're going to have, I think that's going to be very difficult to do politically. Um. So, you know, you could restrict it and restrict it at the very top because, again, you, you read stories about, you know, I think there's a story in the paper about two months ago about a a, a, a couple who had bought a house out in Bridge or Donnybrook for a hundred thousand, and they were now selling it for several million, right? Because that was their principal residence. That's completely untaxed. But but that system encourages Irish people to think of housing as an asset rather than you know somewhere to provide shelter as kind of something that provides you with the flow of housing services. So I, for me. That's actually, I think, where the biggest ta- distortion is in terms of the tax treatment of housing, and it's not really around the reits. But, but again, I, I know others have different views. But for me, that's actually, yeah, I
1: agree with you in terms of you know the, the the need to tax, you know, property properly so that it does. It's not treated as as a speculative asset. And absolutely, mm. it's treated as its primary value, which is shelter and home. Um, but I would disagree with John the reits definitely. I I think that that. The whole structure, and I understand the argument made around, again, and I don't want to go too far into this rabbit hole, but the argument around you know, this idea of, you know, mom and pop landlords versus creating vehicles. My view is we didn't need vehicles investing in buying and purchasing um, large scale built rent. What we needed was the state to build affordable rental on a huge scale. And, you know, we can argue over yeah. and back around that.
2: Um so I think I agree with you, like the state should be doing a much larger role in terms of affordable and social housing and building that. and and we should be trying to expand the the reach of that, right? At the moment, it's far too restrictive and who is covered by social housing. And in a way, cost rental is a little bit trying to get at that. But, but really, we should be looking at unifying cost rental and social housing and that covering a very large society. Yeah. But partic- particularly, you know, we are going to need just so much housing built. You know, there's we've had the figure of 30,000 for the last few years. And it's been very clear for many years that that's far too low, mm. that rather it should be 50,000, 60,000. And again, that's per year. Right. And so the fact that we haven't achieved that for best part of a decade now means that we have this huge backlog to make. But, so but I'm looking... I, I, th- I think you need both, right? You, you need no, but- the state providing huge amounts of housing, but then also you do need private investments in housing in my view. and, and part yeah, you of need that, private I think,
1: investment, about- but there's a particular type of private investment. And I think the private investment that we've seen over the last... Eight years has been a particularly aiming at really, you know, expensive luxury type apartments like that are, you know, way beyond the reach of anyone and, and are, you know, dragging rents up. But anyway, I don't want to go too far down that one. I'm going to move on from that one because I do want to talk about this question of um addressing, it, sorry, the inequality one I wanted, because you do highlight in the report, and I wanted, there was two two aspects. One, I wanted to look at some of the figures, because I, I think they're really stark, because you say that income inequality, relatively, you know, has been reducing in Ireland, but I think the figures are stark when you look at them. Um, And I want you to ask you about them, and, and they're the general disposable income figures. And then I want to look at the specific groups, because my question then is around how these average uh, income inequality figures hide specific groups who have been really affected. And I want to ask you about specific groups like young people or not so young, let's say the under, you know, under 35s and then lone parents and things like that. So first on the the disposable income figures, I was looking at them there. Um, and I, I think they're very stark when you look at them in terms of the, you showed the, you have a table there which shows the disposable income by income quintile and there are things that really jumped out at me was first that the bottom 10 percent um correct no sorry bottom 20 percent which would be quintile one um so that's the bottom 20 percent of the income distribution of households who are who are on the the lower um the lowest 20 percent in terms of income into their household so that's earned and from from welfare their disposable income which would be income available to them uh, after tax, is was sixteen thousand. Um, and I was thinking that's that's you know disposable income in the region of, um, you know probably 11, 1200 a month less, uh, to two two hundred, 250 a week. And then when you go even the the next twenty percent, so you're talking about the bottom forty percent that it was twenty four thousand. So again, very very low. But then when you go to the top twenty percent, it's sixty three thousand. And I was just struck by that. That is a huge differential in terms of people trying to live their lives. That is a significant inequality, is it not?
2: Absolutely, yeah. And so, so one thing on these figures is those those ones are equivalised. They're kind of adjusted for household size, and and they're so you know for for a a family, a two adult family with two kids in the bottom distribution, the the, the nominal figure right, would be a little bit higher. But once you can account for the Explain li- that, Explain that for li-
1: listeners in terms of nominal. Yeah,
2: sure. So so what we try to do and what what you try to do in the measurement of inequality is try to account for the fact that different households have different sizes and compositions, right? And and that yeah. household with two adults and two kids on 50 grand is very different from one adult with 50 grand. And so you want yeah. to try to account for that. And so you do this thing called equivalization, which essentially is just dividing the income by the uh, the number of people with a, a weight for the kids and a weight for the, for the adults. Um, and and then so so but if you know if you're looking at just in nominal so just in kind of cash terms what you see is that incomes are a little bit higher at the bottom than the figures you mentioned but the discrepancy you mentioned is still very large so instead and uh, um, you know for for the the very uh, um um highest income households like you know there there you, you do see it get up to well over a hundred grand at, the, at towards the top of the distribution just in terms of nominal cash and then at the at the bottom. You know you, you are talking kind of into you know there, there are households there with, with with very little and and so that is a real you know that does reflect inequality and that is you know just just demonstrates just that there is a big gap over that distribution of income Um, again you know we tr- so there's different ways you can try and measure this in terms of the Gini coefficient but also in terms of lots of other measures so we looked at this and it's not just down to the Gini coefficient but the distribution of income in Ireland is about a little bit less unequal than in Europe on average we've gone from that situation now so that's not to say it's you know oh, oh it's fine but just in terms of relatively speaking it, it's we're at kind of the, you know just around the mid table on, on the kind of the less unequal side of the mid table of European countries we're also we're in a situation now where we're not so different from some of the Nordic countries because actually you know you've seen Sweden see inequality increase uh, um, over that same time while we've seen inequality decrease so we are kind of almost we've kind of been crossing almost in that sense but but again these are just the ways that you can measure inequality. There, People can think that our current level is too high. Uh, um, I think less people might think, oh, it's it's too low, but you, you know, th- th- these are things that you can have different views on. But for me, what I think what it does really stand out is, yes, there is that huge dispersion. And then in terms of the groups you mentioned, I think that's where maybe the uh, things are maybe even more striking, right? So you consist, like, even though we've had this inequality falling in Ireland over the long kind of run, over the last 30 years or so, what you still see and what you've consistently seen throughout is that there's groups like lone parents there's people with disabilities and people in rental accommodation they they have consistently had much higher rates of of very low living standards right and so two ways of looking at that are one this thing called income poverty and that means living in a household with less than 60 percent of the average and so that means you're on a a very low level of income right and uh, uh, whereas and and then you we also have this other measure which is called material deprivation which i think in Mm -hmm. a way is more reflective of of the very, the, you know, the living standards and experiences that that people have. Yeah. And that's you're you're not able to afford two or more items from list of ten essentials. So that's things like you know being able to buy a, a, a warm coat in winter, being able to have a roast meal once a week. That's now been widened to include a vegetarian equivalent. So you know th- yeah. those kind of things. And right? heat your and, house
1: and, and, and heat those your house. Are, All the, yeah. exactly. And
2: and if you're unable to to do that because you don't have enough money. Yeah. Can, and, and there's a very material. interesting
1: one in there, which is uh socializing and, and buying mm. um I think attending parties for children and things like that, they're yeah. they are very um, important things. Yeah, absolutely. And I and, think,
2: and, and, yeah, and, and, and actually, Ireland was really at the forefront of pioneering some of those measures, of material deprivation. Some of my yeah. former colleagues at the SRI were really kind of important in getting that. And then that became kind of a European measurement and something that is looked at across the EU. But, re, you know, and, and on that, that's a lot more responsive than, say, you know, over, over the crash of the financial crisis back in like 2017 through to 2007, I should say, sorry, to 2012, you actually didn't see income poverty go up that much because incomes were falling for everyone, right? And so income poverty is this relative concept. But what you did see was you saw poverty, you saw material deprivation really jump up uh, and start to come down. And again, what, what we've seen here, in, in the in the latest year is actually, you know, we see income poverty go up a tiny bit, but really you've seen a jump up in material deprivation from about 13% to 16%, so a jump of three percentage points uh, in a year. And, and I think that does reflect the fact
1: and that... And for children again, as well, a significant mm, increase as well. Absolutely. I, I was struck... It, it, to me, it was like the pattern we saw after um, the crash. It, it it followed in terms of children rising significantly, those groups of lone parents rising again um, and during austerity I, I was quite struck by the 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 speed at which um the pace at which deprivation increased in the last couple of last two years or so
2: yeah no absolutely even just the last year there's been, there there's been really you know well a statistically significant jump but also it is a notable jump right it's 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 relatively sizable and I think that really is about the fact that you have had income growth stalling for these groups particularly you know lone parents um who, who are you know have very low rates of employment for, for good reasons that's very hard to get child care uh and the like um but you what you have seen is that rates of material deprivation did jump up suddenly for them and that reflects the fact their incomes are stalling the fact that prices are going up very fast and so it is you know I think that's where kind of the first material deprivation if you like is a bit of a more responsive indicator yeah. of of the living standards of the very poorest, yeah. and, and so from that point of view, I think it, it it's a good one to
1: keep an eye on as well. Because and, and like and, and the figures, you know, are just they're so stark, you know. And again, it's when we talk about inequality, you know, when you look at levels of deprivation amongst lone parents, forty two percent, um, those renting from an approved housing body, local authority, are receiving half forty five percent, half of them, you know, in in deprivation. Um, A household where no one of working age was in paid work, 53%. And again, many of those would be um, disability, long-term illness, caring, those sort of roles. Um, And then children as well, living in households, renting, um, where there was no one in paid work, was at high risk of poverty. And it really does show that. These groups have faced, and and, and as soon as the economy changes in terms of things like inflation rising, they are hit the hardest straight away. It's just,
2: yeah, absolutely. But but then for I think also for me is like even when the economy is doing well, you still see very high rates of material deprivation amongst those groups. Yeah, so not quite as high as you know the you know, the latest data, but still very very high. And and you know that's been the case. That, and I think that's kind of maybe, and that's that's the way I would really see what these kind of figures say show us and what the work that we've done with the Community Foundation the last few years, allowing them to look at is that you have seen a general improvement in income inequality. I think it's important to recognise that and, moreover, to understand it so we can try and learn what we did right yeah. and take that, right? But then you have also seen that coexist with very high rates of material deprivation, that very high instance of low living standards for certain groups. And so one group that isn't in there that we should also mention is, is, is those members of the travelling community, right? So this is based on household survey data, and so it's just not able to capture very well very you know very certain groups like that. But, but that's a group that we know from other work are, are face incredible hardships and uh, uh, and huge inequalities and so for so for me you know that members of the travelling community along with uh, lone parents uh, um those in households where no one's in paid work and and those in households with disabilities are really the groups that stand out at even despite the relative kind of progress that we've made in terms of incomes that still face these real hardships. Um, and, and that's kind of maybe motivates what I think may might be talking about a little bit later on. But in terms of, you know, that's true for children in all those households as well, right? And yet we have this welfare system at the moment, which doesn't allow us to direct resources towards the poorest kids. You know, I, I remember being struck when I moved back in the UK that, you know, the, the level of social, you know, not, not, not to use that as a as an example of what we should be achieve, uh, aiming for, but rather, <laughs> you know,
0: if, most if you look certainly
2: the, not. Most certainly not, <laughs> yes. And, yeah. But if you look at their, you know, they, they, they are quite stingy in how much they give to a single adult um, who's out of work, right? their job seeker's rate is somewhere around £100 uh, uh, pounds, uh, a month, or it's now universal credit, so it's embedded into that, right? Yeah. But they, they used to give a big additional payment to that if you had kids, right? Whereas in Ireland, we have kind of a high base rate, so it's you know 220 or so a week, but we don't give that much extra if you have kids. And for me, that's always been something that's a little, you know you, only, you can get an extra 40 quid or so per kid per week um and, and whereas in the uk you're talking like you know mo- you you will get multiples of your base rate of payment if you have kids and you're out of work and i think that in part reflects i think that part contributes to the those statistics that we see where we see very high rates of material deprivation for those in households where there's no one in paid work and and given how damaging poverty is for kids right because there there is actually a lot of work done by this um, and a lot of by economists uh, I, I should add in defense of my profession um looking, looking and trying to look really rigorously at well what is the impacts of poverty on on children and they try to kind of exploit really policy changes in uh, you know where you gave a lot of money to, to to some kids but not others and try to use that to kind of credibly identify stuff and there really is a good deal of evidence and really strong evidence that just being in poverty you know it's 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 it negatively affects with the child's outcomes at the time, but also their their later life outcomes, and really quite substantially. So you know, given that, given that we have these figures in Ireland where we where we see that, particularly for those in households where there's no unpaid work, children in those kind of situations, children of lone parent, I really think there's a good case that we should be directing a lot more resources towards those kids, the very poorest uh, kids. It's, and I, and...
1: And, and it is in terms of those negative impacts, you know, the the research that I've done around psychological impacts, you know, developmental impacts on children in terms of poverty. And one of the the particular areas, you know, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett have done, you know, a huge amount of work. And this is the whole, you know, concept of the stress impact in families in poverty and how that impacts on children in terms of brain development, in terms of their health, their physical health. um, And there's... The, the, the developmental stages of children, particularly around the brain um, and their whole emotional and social development is so critical that they're not experiencing high stress environments because it does leave those. Because if you think they're growing and therefore those uh, impacts of stress and can have lifelong impacts. And that's you know, the concept. And, and Finton O'Toole is writing about it today in the Irish Times and uh, quoting yourself as well in terms of the report, which is great. Um, Around you know the concept of adverse childhood experiences. And and this is not just in terms of, you know, it's it's good to hear economics is identified, but you know, social policy, mm-hmm. psychology, all these different fields have identified that it costs the economy more, it costs society, but the impact on children in terms of their development is is lifelong. And that's really just, you know, it's 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 morally wrong and it's ethically wrong as a society that that we allow this to happen when it's completely avoidable particularly you know now and and as as we've had for 20 years massive wealth in this country
2: yeah Yeah, no absolutely and and look ultimately I think it's about choices right so it's Mm. you know we we set out in our report kind of different ways that you could try to reduce child poverty and so the, the way I think that, that we thought looks most sensible is to do a bit of a restructure of the benefit system. So, you know, at the moment, if you're out of work completely, you get these things called increases for qualified children. So it's an additional payment on top of your job seekers or whatever to to, yeah. to those with kids. And then that gets means tested very rapidly. But then once you're working more than 20 hours a week, you can get this thing called working families payment, previously called family income supplement. Um, But there's that kind of a bit of a disconnect there, right? So we actually, we give quite a bit of money to those kids to, to the, the families of kids who where their parent works more than 20 hours a week we don't give much to those who are working kind of like you know eight eight to, eight to 20 hours a week and we give a bit to those at the bottom and so so what we kind of suggested was that well you should overhaul that system and the way that we suggest overhauling it was essentially having you know a big payment you know a second tier of child benefit really that replaces working families payment and IQCs so you, you Everyone gets the universal child benefit, but you also get a top up if you're in a low income household. And then that's gradually means tested away. Uh, uh, um, so that you're not giving it to the, the very richest households. But we estimate that making that change uh, and doing the way that we can have set out could lift about 40,000 kids out of poverty, out of, you know, so that's reduced child poverty by about a quarter. So and taking 40,000 kids out of poverty. And, and and again, so there is a choice to be made there, right? That that, that would be expensive, it would cost about 700 million a year. But that's you know that's kind of the scale less than the scale of the tax cuts that we're talking about making this year as well, right? So for me, for me, I think it just comes down to choices. That yes, I, I agree with what you said out that child poverty is a really really difficult social challenge, but one that we can address. Um, and yeah. but it involves making choices like that, right? That we're going to spend money on, you know, giving money to low income families with kids and improving services versus are you know, take it, taking a few euro uh, 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 off your tax bill at the end of the year. And for me, that's kind of what that comes down to. And really, it is just a political choice at the end of the day,
1: and, and those figures are really stark, you know, in terms of you say seven hundred million equivalent to the tax cuts that are being proposed that are likely to go ahead in the budget, that as a choice between those things that it is that that because that seven hundred million is obviously a recurring payment required. Yeah but the tax cuts similarly are recurring costs that you know you're deciding to to forego, um and that it would lift 40,000 children out of poverty um is there any reason why technically or uh, you know in terms of implementation wise the government couldn't do it in this budget
2: um it might take like, I think it might take a little bit longer than you know I think if you if you announce in this budget you probably couldn't roll it out on the 1st of January but the you know later in the year it's the type of thing that we sh- should be able to do it i think but you're something you could, it's
1: something you could do within six months or eight months not it doesn't need I, I don't think it's a multi-year project i think it's kind of you know like you might take a bit of a
2: lead in time but it's not 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 something that you, it's not something you're talking about oh well it'll take a decade to do or five years to do this is something you could yeah. do in the next year or two right um I, I think if you if you set your mind to it and made that a priority you could Um, yes it would require some changes in systems and all the rest but that that's I think we're actually in a good place with changes that they made in the background to the minister of things, which are very boring. which would we actually leave us able to do that? But so so you know it is something that could be done, and and again for me it just comes down to you know what 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 choices are different governments going to make, and and people have to, you know people can have different preferences over that, and that's really a well spot. What what I think our research tries to do is kind of set out some of those choices and trade offs. Yeah. There, right. So like. At the SRI, the SRI is never pushing a particular option, but saying, Well, look, you can do this. If you if this is your objective, you want to reduce child poverty, here's a way you can do it and it be most effective and have the least amount of kind of other trade-offs, but also it's going to cost money and you're going to be able to do less elsewhere. So that's kind of really I think the the, the framing of what we were trying to get around the, the papers to say, like, look, there are things you can do. Here is some of the options, and now you know that that's it's in the political arena for for what they want to prioritize.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there is a real need to highlight that as a, as a real choice and a real possibility and that that is available as a choice um, that could be made. Just in terms of to finish up, um, mm. it's been really, really, you know, great. It's a really important research, what you're doing and what you've done in the SRI, what hopefully you'll continue doing in Trinity, um, as I'm sure you will, in terms of highlighting that inequality. And while we mightn't agree on everything, I think it really is important to have this data and to be looking at it and showing what's possible and and breaking down and you do focus you know importantly on the different groups and putting the focus on inequality as a as a concept because of course some people even uh, question you know in terms of uh, isn't I always remember Michael McDowell's um famous quote about inequality being necessary in society as a as a motivating factor and that, you know there is still that ideology and viewpoint out there that you know we need to show that inequality is actually hugely destructive Um, and requires focus so so I really appreciate your work on that Um, and it's it's you know it's really solid and um readable as well you know and while so you know I think that's important as well that the general public can uh you know take this look at it and and you know understand it and relate to it and I think that's really important um and I know it's it's an important source as well for civil society groups who are uh, you know engaging in advocacy as well which is important um uh, and the the question just to finish on the the issue of the budget surpluses that are available in the coming years, um, in the region of you know twelve billion this year, potentially up to fifty six billion in in the coming years. I've made the argument that um as that there's no reason why, so they're putting a certain certain amount away into paying down the debt, a certain amount, this is what seems to be proposed anyway, a certain amount into different vehicles that will be essentially, you know, this pension reserve fund, um, that in actual fact we should be putting aside a significant amount into setting up a public, um, a national building agency that should include, construction company uh, enhancing the capacity long-term capacity of local authorities housing associations essentially enhance our public capacity to provide housing and build housing on a major scale rather than being used to subsidize essentially what it's being developers to uh, build um private developers and that the, the the one of the biggest arguments I hear back against this is that oh well that will be inflationary and we don't really have the capacity to do that. But my argument is, for example, you could, there's no reason why we couldn't be setting up, you know, four modular home uh, building factories that would be long-term producing housing that you would be taking on public sector employees as all the construction trades, and that that would attract people in. Um, and I think it was your colleague, former colleague in the SRI, Kieran McEwan, made the argument of, you know, this concept of crowding in, uh, rather than crowding out around the market that the public sector can provide this, that really that's what we could use a a large chunk like four to eight billion of the surplus to do and that that would be long-term transformative rather than putting it into rainy day funds and that Mm. what's your sense
2: i I think i i I agree and disagree with you so i um, where i agree is that i think there needs to be and what should be at the forefront of a conversation around this is building state capacity right and and that you know i think maybe where i disagree is exactly how you do that right But, Mm. but in terms of being able to put the state into a position where it can deliver these big projects and deliver them consistently over time. And so like when we do have a recession, you know, now it doesn't look like, okay, sometimes the GDP stats look like it might be in a recession, but it's not not really one. Mm. Um, but I think we need to be develop- developing the capacity of the state to be able to carry on investment over the cycle. So to be able to continue investing in capital projects when times are bad, which is what we didn't do during the last recession, right? The yeah. first thing that got cut was capital investment. And that's a lot of the problem with where we are now is is that rather than the state trying to build lots of stuff when times were bad and you know when we could have kept a lot of construction workers from emigrating if we state that it kept building right so we want to be in a position where we can do that but also in terms of the capacity i think part of that discussion has to involve things around planning right and and for me i increasingly see things where Essentially, it looks like middle-class people are hijacking environmental concerns to stop housing in their area, or you know, in, in places like Dorky, where maybe it's not so middle-class. Um, and you, you see the system is being used to stop, you know, projects being built, really important projects around around housing, but also around the electricity generation, right? And so I think you know, so in terms of that that kind of big picture on building state capacity, I completely agree with you. That's where we need to be going. But then in terms of how you do it, I think I disagree. So I, I amn't so keen on the idea of a state building construct company because I i think we'll find it very difficult to retain talent in, in that way i think you're better off doing it by continuing to contract outs and stuff but the state should have a much larger presence right so in that that maybe it's just about really how you do it but on, on the question you raised about the should we spend the four to eight billion more on that i i do think that there is an issue that we if you did that this year that you would get is going up significantly and you wouldn't get much more output i do think that there is that is a legitimate concern now on what the exact scale of that is like you maybe you could do a bit more than is being planned doing maybe that bit more is a billion maybe that bit more is two or three billion i'm not sure that's mm. not my my area but so i think there is something you, you could maybe do a bit more on the margin but i do think if you were to go significantly above that you do risk just getting a situation where you know given the constraints that are in the system at the moment given where we are that you would end up with prices being pushed up in construction and not much more output being delivered so for example you know i i in terms of modular housing i think that kind of thing you know those are the types of things which i think are a good idea that we, we you know we, we need a much more innovative construction sector construction sector productivity has not been good over the past um, few decades and that's something in many countries as well right but but it's doing things where we try to boost the productivity of the construction sector and be you know maybe that maybe rather than the state directly building modular housing companies maybe it's about you know a particular r d tax credit to to both, but you know both state agencies if, if that's something we can kind of encourage but also with the private sector to try encourage more innovation on building methods and and like there but but so so I, I, again i i think i disagree with you on some of the exact kind of approaches on, on how to do that but i think again big picture I, I actually think there's a lot more consensus than we maybe maybe think and across the political divide on the fact that we need the state to do more so for example Danny McCoy from IBEC was out again I think this last week talking about there needs to be a bigger state right and so we, we should recognize we're in this remarkable position in this country where the head of the business lobby group is talking about taxes need to be higher as a share of national income to fund a larger state because they recognize that there are critical bits of infrastructure there are critical bits of public services which are integral to the road to the you know this, to, to the ability of the firms that they represent to, to to be successful that aren't happening and that we need a larger state for that to happen. And so, it, it, I, you know, I think there is actually a really fruitful discussion to be had around how do we build state capacity? And again, people can disagree on the precise ways that you do it. But that, that for me should, is one of the biggest challenges in the years ahead and really what should be the forefront of every political party's manifesto is how do you enable the state to do what it needs to do better? And and some of those things are going to like you know for the Greens that's going to involve awkward conversations around well do we have limitations on some of these environmental regulations that seem to really impinge on our ability to deliver big housing projects for other groups there might be you know other parties there might be other uncomfortable things but that really should be the like the focus and emphasis of all parties is having having a state which is a lot has that greater capacity to deliver on those projects where we really needed to deliver on
1: yeah no I, I think it it is definitely there the, you know the consensus is there and i think it, you know in part not in part it is because they've the the market has failed so fundamentally in housing and and state has failed as well that you know to ensure um a sufficient supply of affordable housing but i think the, the approach of this, which is, you know, Danny McCoy would say, yes, we need a bigger state, but all their things about how do we incentivize the market? You're saying it as well. How do we incentivize the market or indeed credits? And I think, of course, you're going to have market supply. Of course, you're going to have a certain private sector. But unless the state builds its own capacity to deliver a certain amount of housing, hmm. that regardless of what goes on in the market, yeah. that and that we just still don't have that. We're still completely reliant on private developers to provide housing. And, and it- they, so 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 I, I I I hear what you're saying, but like for me,
2: you know, would it be better that we spend an extra ten billion this year on trying to? push through a bunch of projects when we don't there isn't the capacity there to do it or is it better holding a bit back for when there is an a crash that we can ride through that recession but, but that, the
1: thing is we're not even putting the money into for example local authorities housing associations like i can give you examples of projects that aren't being developed and there is issues around you know site preparation yeah, um like a will say for example the the not for profit housing provider they don't have enough seed financing to start projects um, You know, local authorities, it's, it's a staffing issue. They don't have the money to hire enough staff. There's still restrictions there. And again, I will come back to the issue of, you know, why don't we have a public construction company that is building, let's say, a thousand homes a year? Do you know what I mean, it's not like building saying we're going to build 20,000, but, you know, there's much more comp- potential capacity around modular housing, I think, that you could be delivering. Um, but why why aren't we looking at public sector capacity? We do it in health, we do it in education. Why are we saying in housing we're not going to do it? And I think it is because the private interests are still completely dominant in it. And we should be open and honest. They say, you know, that... Um, that uh, it's about, you know, the state doesn't have the capacity. Well, the state, you know, why why can't the state have capacity in housing if it can have capacity in education and health? Is housing some magic uh, process that requires some level of ingenuity beyond the state beyond civil servants and public sector workers like nurses and doctors? So, so again, I, I don't think it's impossible that you can get to that position,
2: right? And, and yeah. I think you can make the argument that we should get to that position. Mm. But I think rather it's the given where we are, how quickly should you move in that area? And like, if you were to spend all the money on, you know, if you were to spend a huge amount extra on trying to do that next year, I think you'd run into difficulties. Now, in terms of like, I think there's actually huge scope to, you know, beef up the LDA in that regard. So I, I think in, in terms of there is important, I think there's important discussions and debates around what bit of what arm of the state gets involved in that. So mm. I, I don't have much uh, faith in the ability of local authorities to deliver housing. I, I, I think we are better off not... Cutting our emphasis with them, rather, I would, you know, if I think that's the direction you want to go, and there's good reasons you might want to go that, I think beefing up the LDA, the low, uh, uh, is really where where that should go, and so moving away from its focus just on state sites and kind of lands that are owned by the state, and moving it into the operation of, well, okay, it can get into the game of CPOing or acquiring sites and and you know master planning them and contracting them out if that's kind of more the approach you want to go, but I think it's going to be something that takes many years and 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 so from that point of view i i you know those discussions i think are are interesting but but again in a sense i don't think the crucial thing is necessarily whether it's the state doing it directly or if it's the state having a larger role through contracting it to you know whether it's a state building company or not i don't think is really the big question it's 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 the question is really about the state having the capacity to do that in whatever form it does and 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 those debates about whether it's the state construction company or whether it's you know contracting out are kind of in a way second order to to the big one which is should the state have a larger role in areas like housing I think there the answer I think most people would say yes and then it's mm. then you get into the things of well how and, and, and at what speed. And I think they're they're they they are tricky questions where you can have different views and and and, and that that's kind of maybe where you can have some of the way. But really the big question for me is is about that state capacity and then some of the things you need to do to free up that state capacity. And again, I do think planning is going to be one that 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 has to be looked at there. It's just if you, if you, not just for from the issue of housing, but in terms of our ability to deliver on the energy and transport projects we need so uh last bit on this but like you know you look at the bus connects um environmental impact assessments that are needed you're talking about each bus connects corridor and so you know they're on the website about eight of them or whatever each of them have needed a separate environmental impact assessment and those environmental impact assessments are each several thousand pages long and when you know for most of the most of that that's reallocating space on a dual carriageway like the one out to you know maynooth you know yeah um, talking about reallocating space on what is effectively a motorway and dual carriageway to a bit to bus lanes and yet that needs this huge environmental impact system which delays things massively and so if we are serious about delivering on things like energy in terms of transport in terms of housing i think there is going to be discussion about do we allow as much levels of of uh opposition and veto points as we currently have because for me we're never going to get there if we, if we don't and i think that's one of the things we should be focused on necessarily rather than the precise way in which we achieve that the the, the the greater state capacity that maybe we're, we're agreed on
1: yeah yeah the, the, the whole planning area is, is a big question because it's the question of you know what's the principles behind the planning that have been developed and for what purpose they've developed and i think you know at some level you know i know the planning Procedures and planning that has been there has actually not been pro um, development in the sense of you know there are issues around it. Um, but then on the other hand, of course, you need to protect environmental concerns and you need to have democratic input. So I think it's a it's a balance that needs to be got on that. Um, but I do think, but I don't think we have that balance at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, but I do think as well, the issue with planning as well has been that planning, you know, a lot of planning around, you know, the changes around the bill to rent uh, regulations and things like that. People saw that very negatively as reducing housing standards and people are saying, oh, there's opposition to to large housing developments. And, well, part of the opposition to large housing developments because people say, well, no one is going to be able to afford them. So why... You know, whereas if they there's much less opposition to things like, you know, mixed income public housing, you know, cost rental housing than there is, you know, there is opposition, but there is less. And I would argue increasingly less. And if people like Okulon, for example, will say when they go into a community, they go do serious, intensive work with the community explaining what, you know, the affordable housing that will be available um, and they get much less opposition than build to rent. So I I don't think it's as clear a case that, um you know people will oppose regardless of course there is huge there is issues around um people opposing housing and things like social housing of course that's there and that needs to be but that needs to be worked through as a society i think and needs to be discussed as a society as well um but listen barra <laughs> we won't solve that one right now it was no. great though i really appreciate you given the time and um, given your time it's really really important stuff and listen thanks so much for coming on reboot republic today no thanks for having me on Great, Barra Roundtree there, and um, you can check out the report is available on the ESRI website. Um, you can check them out there, and uh, really worth really worth a read on inequality. And we're we'll looking forward to having Barra back again, hopefully in in um in a few weeks time or a few months time, um, depending on uh, how cross he is after the podcast. <laughs> Whether he'll come back on or not. Ah, oh, no, no, he's laughing away there still. Yeah, absolutely. We're all Happy right. to come on
2: anytime.
1: <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. No, listen, it's great to have you on. As an economist, as an economist, defending your profession. Um absolutely. And uh, no, it is great. Great to have uh, have you on. And listen, I know listeners will have got a huge amount out of that. And as always, listeners, please, we are an independent podcast produced by Tortoise Track Media. If you can consider becoming a patron, you get all the podcasts first um, to your email. And it's only the price of a cup of coffee, uh, which, of course, is increasing each month. And that is the reality, unfortunately. But if you can help us out yeah, please go over to patreon.com and share around the podcast as well. We really appreciate that um people sending around sharing around send us in your comments too um and any guests you would be interested in us having on thank you so much i will talk to you all very very soon